Thanks for tuning in to the Met Church Podcast. Here at the Met, we are all about connecting people to God and one another. If you have any questions or want more information about what's happening here at the church, then head to our website at metchurch.com. We would love to stay connected with you throughout the week through social media, so be sure to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Now, enjoy the message. But we're in a new series called On the Road, and it's our summer series where we're looking at experiences in the Bible that happen on the roadways and happened in cities and towns where God did something significant in the life of his people. Because really, when you think about it, all of our lives are a journey. We're on a journey this morning. We're not ultimately where we're going to be. We're not where we used to be. And God is moving us progressively through our lives. And he's doing some incredible things in the midst of all of these experiences of life. And so we're going to hopefully help you connect some dots to maybe some of the things God might be up to uh, in your life as well. But let me pause for a moment before I jump into that just to say how thankful I am for all God is doing in the life of our church. This is an exciting week. Next couple of weeks for kids' ministry. Uh, kids are heading to camp. A lot of those kids are leaving today. A couple of weeks we have Wow Week, which is an incredible experience for all the kids. That's going on. And then as you heard Pastor Corey talk about the Resource Center, you see the construction. I think they've got the piers down now. A lot of great things happening there. And with that mega of, of, of food opportunity we have with North Tarrant Food Bank, we have this incredible opportunity to take what we're doing currently and feeding families and essentially double that number over the course of the summer. We currently take care of about 250 families every week. And being able to do this once a month, that mega food thing, uh, it will enable us to take that number up uh, uh, basically to about, as he said, 500 to 700 additional families. So that puts us up 1,500, close to 2,000 families over the course of the summer that because of your generosity and because of the selfless sacrifices of our volunteers, we can help that many people. I think that's something to celebrate, folks. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing. So thank you guys for that. We're all very aware of the economy. We're all very aware of the pressure that is put on household budgets. And one of the things that our church is able to do to families who find themselves in any kind of crisis is to be able to say, look, if you didn't have your grocery bill every month, if we could take that off of you, is it possible that you could make your mortgage payment? Could you make the car payment? Could you make the utility payment? And nine times out of 10, they say That's the, that would be a deal break. I mean, that would be a, a deal maker for us. And so essentially what our church is able to do is lift the grocery bill off of that many families. So that frees up the resources that they can meet other needs that they're facing. So it's something I think God has called our church to do. We're stepping into a gap. We're filling a need. And so I just thank you for your generosity. As, as uh, Amber said in the video, roll in, uh, every dollar you give to the life of this church, you are a part of all that God is doing here. And once the Resource Center is up, we'll be able to offer six days a week of ministry. We're currently partnering with my brother and sister-in-law's ministry, Tarrant County Hands of Hope, which is the largest uh, outreach ministry uh, in our city. In fact, one of the young ladies you saw baptized a moment ago is a part of their team, Beth, and she and her husband are a big part of our church family. And so I'm just excited to see our church being able to help people when they are uh, in crisis. Um, you don't reach people, we talk about it all the time, you don't reach people till they get reachable. 
And the churches that are there and available and accessible to people when they are reachable are the churches that can be God's point of grace. And we want our church certainly uh, to be that. So our plans are to expand in that area. So we want to thank you for your partnership with us as we continue to see what God's going to do here. This morning, we're going on the journey. And in the journey we're going on today, we're going to see the significance of six cities that are mentioned in the Old Testament. The significance of these six cities where they were places of refuge, they were places of safety, they were places of security, they were safe harbors for people who had made mistakes. God set it up that way. In fact, when you look into the Old Testament, you see the grace of God very prominent and prevalent throughout all the Old Testament. Uh, In fact, when you read Genesis 7, the Bible says um, that uh, Noah found grace Grace in the eyes of the Lord. God's grace is seen throughout all the Bible. Sometimes people erroneously think of the Old Testament this way. They say, well, the Old Testament is about Moses and the prophets. And you really don't see a clear picture of Jesus in the Old Testament. But the reality of it is every type and every symbol and every story in the Old Testament were used to point people toward Christ. In fact, the Old Testament has Jesus in shadow where the Gospels has him in reality. So you see the shadow of Jesus coming, you see the reality of Jesus as he's here, and then you see the promise of Jesus coming again uh, as you go throughout the the, the New Testament. In fact, if you had a very simple way of breaking the Bible down to understand it, I would say the Old Testament, the, the theme of the Old Testament is Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. That's the theme of the Old Testament. Messiah, Messiah is coming. That's throughout all the Old Testament. Uh, Then you get to the Gospels. Jesus is here. (laughs) He's here. Where is he? The uh, wise men ask. Where is he who is born king? He's here. Uh, Jesus said, I and the Father am one. He said, if you've seen me, you've seen my Father. The Messiah is here. And then when you get to Acts 1, it's the ascension of Jesus. Throughout Revelation 22, 21, the theme of the Bible is Jesus is coming again. So you get the theme? He's coming, he's here, he's coming again. So the Bible is all about Jesus. The Old Testament is about Jesus. In fact, it's the only scriptures that Jesus had available for him during his earthly ministry. Time and time again, you see Jesus quoting from the Old Testament. In fact, in Luke 24, when he appears after the resurrection to those disciples on the road to Emmaus, the Bible says Jesus began to teach them the things concerning himself from the scriptures. Well, what scriptures? Well, it was the Old Testament. So obviously, the Old Testament pointed to Jesus. In fact, in John 5, Jesus said in verse 39, search the scriptures, these are they which testify of me. Now, the reason I say that to you is so that the message this morning makes sense. These Old Testament cities of refuge were a beautiful picture of who Jesus is. They're a beautiful picture for the people of that day of who Jesus would be to them. And so in this story, we're going to see some great significance. And as we go through it, I'll kind of help you connect some dots, and then we'll go home. Joshua 20, look at verse 1. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Tell the Israelites to designate the cities of refuge, as I instructed you through Moses. Now, he's referring to Numbers 35. The first time cities of refuge were mentioned in the Old Testament, God told uh, Moses, I want to establish these cities of refuge. And so he's coming back now to Joshua and saying, since you now are leading the people, I want you to establish these cities of refuge. Here's why. So that anyone who kills a person accidentally and unintentionally 
may flee there and find protection from the avenger of blood. I'll explain that in a minute. When they flee to one of these cities, they are to stand in the entrance of the city gate. They're to state their case before the elders of the city. And then the elders are to admit the fugitive into their city and provide a place to live among them. If the avenger of blood comes in pursuit, the elders must not surrender the fugitive because the fugitive killed their neighbor unintentionally and without malice aforethought. They are to stay in that city until they have stood trial before the assembly and until the death of the high priest who was serving at that time, then they may go back to their home and into the town from which they have fled. Now, the first thing I want to point out to you just for your understanding, and then we'll apply it. The first thing I want to point out to you is what I'm calling the purpose of these cities, their purpose. Their purpose was obviously stated here. They were to be cities of refuge. They were to be cities that someone could flee to. Now, back in that day, they didn't have the court systems that we have today. Uh, and so what they did is they established these cities called cities of refuge so that if someone, now, now notice in the text, it didn't say they intentionally killed someone. This is not someone who was guilty of murder. This is someone who was guilty perhaps of manslaughter. This is someone who uh, unintentionally, accidentally killed someone they could find a safe harbor, a safe place to go until a, a court could be convened, until a judge could come and hear their case so they would have an opportunity at a fair trial. Um, and so what you had was God establishing cities of refuge for the protection of these people, for the good of these people. And the reason that was important is because according to Numbers um, uh, 23, it was also legal if you had a loved one, a relative that was killed uh, by someone, murdered even by someone, you could hire what was called in the Hebrew a goel, um, an avenger of blood. Uh, we'd say in Texas, a bounty hunter. <laughs> you could hire someone to go after that someone who took the life of your loved one and they could legally be put to death if they caught them and killed them before they reached a city of refuge. So the purpose of these cities was to give someone who accidentally killed someone a fair chance at a fair trial. And so in the, in the, in the event that the person didn't take advantage of that provision, then every possibility, the Goel, the avenger of blood, the bounty hunter would eventually find them and eventually put them to death on behalf of the family. And so that was the judicial system of that day. So the purpose of these cities were, was to give someone an opportunity to have their name cleared, to find forgiveness, to be safe from death in the event that they accidentally, unintentionally took the life of another person. And it happened a lot. People might be clearing land, they might be working on a farm, they might be uh, doing something and building something, and a buddy that's working along their side is accidentally killed, and in some way, maybe out of negligence, uh, um, inadvertently, they did something that either could have prevented the death or might have even caused the death. It happened a lot. And so they had these cities of refuge, these places that they could turn to and run to until a judge could hear their case and a judge then could decide whether or not they're guilty uh, or, or they should be punished. Now, another part of the judicial system of that day is restitution was designed to fit the crime. In other words, Exodus 21, it says it was to be an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a hand for a hand, a foot for a foot, burning for burning, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. That's, that's, that's pretty clear. So they had a legal right to put a person to death 
And so it would be pretty much immediately, there wouldn't be an appeal. If the judge then determined this was murder, this was not manslaughter, then the, the other part of that sentence would then kick in. And so when you draw the analogy to the purpose of the cities and you understand that the Old Testament pictures the coming of Christ, you see how he is depicted, how our Savior is depicted as a person, a place of refuge. Every one of us in this room, we need a safe place. We need a safe person that we can turn to. We need someone who loves us and understands us, who gets the fact that we make mistakes, that we are in need of forgiveness, who will not judge us and who will not turn us away because we realize there is an enemy, there is a goel, there is a, an avenger of blood. There is one hot on the heels, if you will. His call, he, he, the, the Bible says, your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walks about seeking whom he may devour. So you and I, not unlike the people of that day, because we have the burden of sin on our life, and the Bible says the soul that sins must die, we need a place of refuge. We need a place where our case can be adjudicated. We need someone to pay a price for our sin to absolve us and forgive us. We need a, a, a refuge, and Jesus is that refuge. He's that beautiful picture of that one who will come, and in him we can find all that we need for safety and for security. You see, when God, when you step into a relationship with Jesus Christ, he not only saves you in the sense that he forgives you and exonerates that which was wrong in your life, but he secures you. As long as you were in the city, you were secured. And long as you are in Christ, you are secured. I'm one of those people who believe the Bible teaches that once you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you cannot be unborn. Once saved, I believe always saved. I believe in the eternality of salvation, meaning once you've given your heart to Jesus, according to Ephesians 1, we then are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, meaning the Holy Spirit seals us in the deal. And the salvation that we experience is as good as long as the seal is good. And since God cannot lie and his spirit will not be broken, we're good unto the day of redemption. Our salvation is good until the moment we step into the presence of God. So think about this, Jesus is our refuge. He's our safe city. He's the place, the person that we can run to when the burden of sin is heavy. We can run to them when the burdens of life are heavy and we can find safe refuge. We find security, we find all that we need in him. Because if you don't turn to Jesus, you're kinda on your own, like the people of that day. My brother and sister and I, we had a great uncle in Oklahoma way back in the day. His name was Uncle Chester. And Uncle Chester had a unique job with the uh, Oklahoma uh, Prison uh, Bureau. He worked at the main prison there in uh, McAllister, and his job was to run bloodhounds. Now, I was real young when Uncle Chester ran bloodhounds, but I remember as a little kid, I, I used to love to hear him talk about that. Uh, I, I'm told that these bloodhounds have an ability to, to, to pick up a scent a hundred times greater than an average person can, can possibly pick up a scent. That's why most law enforcement uh, uses the bloodhound. They're very good at what they do. And Uncle Chester had several of them. And so we'd sit around and from time to time, he told us about the bloodhounds. He'd say, every now and then we'll have a prison break. They'll wake me up and I'll get the hounds and we'll get on the trail of them. And he said, this is so bad. He said, what I would do if they run my dogs hard and if they run my dogs all night, he said, I might let them chew on them a little while before I pull them back. <laughs> I know it was a different day. 
Uncle Chester's in heaven, I hope, but that's just what he said. But the point is, once you are a, a criminal and once you are, you've made your break, there's gonna be some hounds that are coming after you. They're on your trail. There is a devil, <laughs> there is an enemy. There is the accuser of the brethren, the Bible calls him. And so I'm just suggesting to your heart this morning, every one of us need a place of refuge. And so the purpose of these cities and the lives of those people were to provide refuge. It was a symbol, a sign of the coming of Jesus. So you see their, uh, their purpose. Number two, notice with me their position. And this is significant. These cities were located, six of them, three to the east of Jordan, three to the west of Jordan. Now, why was that significant? It's significant because they were available. They were available. No matter where you lived in the country, you were never far from a city of refuge. You could live in the central most part of the country and you wouldn't be far. Uh, the northern or the southern part of the country, you wouldn't be far. These cities of refuge were available. How available is our Savior to us? The Bible says we're one prayer away. In fact, in Romans chapter 10, verse nine, Paul said it this way. He said, the word, let me give it to you in the King James, the King Jimmy. He said, the word is nigh thee, nigh, even in your mouth, the word that I have preached unto thee, that if thou wilt confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, believe in your heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Now, what was Paul saying? The word is nigh thee, even in their mouth. Paul said, I'm putting the words in your mouth. When I close the service, those of you that have been here, you know, I close encouraging people and I teach because most people, many people don't know how to pray. And I'll encourage and pray a prayer like this. Let it be from your heart. Believe in with all your heart, but simply say, Lord, with all that I know about me, I now trust all that I know about you. What am I doing when I'm stepping someone through a prayer like that? I'm putting, as Paul said, the words in your mouth. I'm saying the word is, I'll help you step. Now you gotta take the step and you have to pray and you have to mean it's between you and God, but I'm gonna try to spoon feed you and I'm gonna try to make it as simple. It's crazy when you take the, the, the simplest message in the world and complicate it. And so well, I'm suggesting to you that these cities were available. It wasn't complicated. In fact, by that law of that day, signage had to be all over the country saying, city of refuge here, city of refuge there. Uh, this is the pathway. So the cities were available. Not only that, think about this. The cities were accessible. By law, nothing could block the roads. They had the priority of the, of the road system of that day was you make sure the best roads in the country are the roads to the city of refuge. If you have to neglect the upkeep on any other road, you don't neglect the upkeep to the city, or to the road to the city of refuge. So what is that? It's the grace of God. I mean, you see it, this is God providing a way for people to find salvation, for people to find security. He is providing a way. He's saying, make the roads clear, make the roads plain, put the sign out, make it nearly impossible, make it idiot proof for anyone not to be able to find a city of refuge. They were available. They were accessible. You could always go there. If you lived in that day and you ask anyone, where's the city of refuge? They say the closest one would be Hebron over here. If you can get to Hebron, Bezer over there. Now, if you're on that side, you want to get to, if that, and because you, you, never, you never knew the uncertainty of life. You, you never knew when life was going to take a turn where suddenly, oh my goodness, I got to find a city of refuge. 
Remember I told you, you, you don't reach people till they get reachable? When somebody is broken and somebody is hurting and something has gone wrong in somebody's life, it's the job of the church to be clear and plain and say, the way is clear, the way is plain. Jesus is the way, he is the truth, he's the life. No one comes to the Father except by him. And he is a city of refuge, he is a safe place. He is a secure place. Turn to him and find rest for your soul. And so these cities, the purpose of the cities were to provide that refuge and the position of these cities were significant. By the way, they were in prominent places throughout the land. Most of the cities were up on a hilltop or many, many of them were up on mountaintops. And, the re and, and by the way, they were built, a lot of them with, with limestone because limestone would reflect the sun, limestone would reflect even moonlight. They used the, the most obvious and they used the, the most apparent type of material so that it could be clearly seen. Think about the, the, the idea of a lighthouse being prominently located where the light shines bright to, to warn people who are sailing by of the rocks and the reefs and the dangers. Well, these cities of refuge were prominent and they were obvious to people. They were accessible and available and everyone knew about them. And this is exactly the word picture of who Jesus is. He's obvious and he's available and he's accessible. We talk about it all the time. The, the, the salvation of our soul is never tied to our religion. The salvation of our soul is tied to the relationship we have in Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John 14, six, I am the way, again, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. And so the minute you receive Jesus into your life, guess what, you've stepped into a city of refuge. You find safety and you find, by the way, security. I said a moment ago, I believe in eternal security. Your soul is eternally secure until you step into the very presence of God. So you see something as we think about this analogy, you see something of their purpose and you see something of their position. Let me give you a third thought. You also see something of their provision. What do the cities accomplished? Well, the first thing they did is they accomplished um, forgiveness, exoneration, the clearing of one's record. They, they made certain that the things that you've done would never, there was no double jeopardy. The things that you've done could never be brought against you again. Once the judge adjudicated your case, you're done. You're clear, you're clean, you're free. It's as if, you, you know what justified means? It's kind of Christianese, let me break it apart. It means to be made just as if I'd <laughs> never sinned. Justified, just as if I'd never sinned. God justifies us. Now there's a difference, let me give this to you. There's a difference between Holy Spirit conviction and unholy spirit accusation. Holy Spirit conviction, unholy spirit accusation. Here's the difference. The Holy Spirit will convict me, or you, of sins that we've not yet confessed, right? Um, that's that stirring within my heart. I know I haven't dealt with this area. My, I need to make that right. I need to ask for forgiveness. I've wronged someone. I need to fix that. God's kind of let me know, right? Uh, or it's something that I know that I haven't really dealt with God about. Lord, it's a bad thing. I'm, I'm forgive. And, and then what do you do? Will you confess? First John 1, 9, if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What is confession? Confession by definition is agreement. Agreement. It's not hard. 
It means, God, you were right and I was wrong. <laughs> That's all it is. So when I confess, I'm aligning myself with God's word, which is true, he cannot lie. I'm saying, you were right, I'm wrong. That's confession. And now our repentance is turning, metanoia is to turn. I was going this way and I'm gonna go that way. Uh, it's not being sorry I got caught, it's being sorry I did it, sorry I said it. So I, I, I'm, I'm in that zone of repentance, turning to God, confession, agreeing with God. And in that moment, there is forgiveness from God. And the Holy Spirit will only convict me about that which I've not confessed. Now here's the rub. The unholy spirit, as I called a moment ago, the accuser of brothers and sisters, He's called the accuser of the brothers and sisters, the accuser. The unholy spirit will accuse us of things that we have done, but that we've already confessed. And the reason it works is because at some point we did it. <laughs> the reason we have that guilty look on our face most of the time is because we're guilty. Most of it, my mom used to love to tell the story. I was a little kid. I had talcum powder head to toe, man. I'm just a little old kid sitting. And the first thing she said, I said to her when she stepped in the bedroom, I'm the only one in there. She said, I didn't do it. That's what I told her. And sometimes, man, we look up at God with talcum powder from head to toe and we're going, I didn't do that. God's going, really, seriously? You can't punk me. What are you talking about here? So my, my point is, folks, God knows and the reason the devil is so effective is he stirs up these mistakes that we've made. And can I tell you something? If you've never made a mistake, you hadn't made much. Anybody that's ever done anything will make a mistake. Anyone who's ever walked this earth will sin from time to time. In fact, when Jesus washed the feet of Simon Peter in the upper room, what he was demonstrating to Simon Peter was to have fellowship with me, I have to have the part of you that comes in contact with the dirty world cleaned every day. He said, if I don't wash your feet, you cannot have fellowship with me. What happens when a Christian sins? It doesn't mean your relationship with God is broken. Remember, I talked about eternal security sealed to the day of redemption. It means your fellowship with God is broken. It means we're not where we used to be. You can be in a relationship and out of fellowship. You're married, right? You ought to say, mm-hmm, that's true. You can be, you have kids, you can be in a relationship, you love those little boogers, but right now you don't like them very much. Same thing with your heavenly father. You could be in a relationship with him where he's your father, you're his daughter, you're his son, but right now you're not good with him. You're not where you should be with him. Well, it's not relationship that needs to be reestablished, it's fellowship, you just need your feet clean. <laughs> you just need to confess, you need to say, Lord, I'm sorry, and allow him to clean you up so you can have fellowship with him again. So the devil will accuse you about things you've already confessed. So here's what I'd do if I were you. If you're troubled about your past and you can't seem to get past your past, if God has forgiven you, you have to forgive yourself. Forgive yourself. You, you, one of the words of, of, of definitions of the word forgive is release, release. When you forgive yourself, you're releasing you. If you took a fist and you made your fist as tight as you can and you held it there, before long, your hand is hurting. Before long, your forearm is hurting. Before long, your whole arm is hurting. Your shoulder will hurt. Soon, your whole body will hurt. But when you release, it has an incredible physiological effect on you. Did you know it'll affect you spiritually and emotionally when you can release some things? Some of you need to release you. You're holding on so tightly to things you've done in the past. And you've asked God multiple times to forgive you. He's forgiven you. You just can't seem to forgive yourself. So you have to get to that point where you can, you can let that go. And so in the cities of refuge, they found security and they found safety 
They learned that through the exoneration of their past that God had let these things go. Let me give you this story and we'll close. 2 Samuel 3 records an interesting story. And in it, about verse 22, you have a lament, a crying out of King David. And in the crying out of King David, he is, he's bemoaning the death of one of his friends. His friend's name was Abner. And in the lament of David for the death of his friend Abner, you read these words, Abner, you died as a fool. You didn't have to die that way. You died foolishly. Well, what is he talking about? What is the backstory? Well, on the plains of Gibeah, the Israel army had engaged in battle. David's commander of chief, Joab, who was the general, he was leading the battle. In the battle was David's friend. Uh, Abner was there. And fighting alongside of Abner was Joab, the general, was his younger brother, Asahel. And Israel prevails in the battle, but something happened in that battle. And the Bible doesn't give us insight into what happened, but something happened in the midst of the battle where young Asahel was angry, enraged at Abner. In fact, he was so angry at Abner, he wanted to kill him. And so the record says that young Asahel started chasing Abner, screaming at him, and when I catch you, I will kill you. Well, the other soldiers had to wonder, what in the world is going on, man? We just won the battle. The, 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 the war is over. What, what are, what's wrong with you? What? And so here is Abner running from Azahel. Abner was a much stronger, much wiser, uh, a more experienced soldier. He wasn't afraid of Azahel. He didn't want to hurt him. He was like, I, I got to cool this kid down. Kid, you got you to cool off. I do not want to fight you. I do not want to hurt you. And it just enraged Azahil. Azahil was screaming, I will kill you when I get my hands on you. And Abner's like, man, I don't, don't want to hurt this kid. So you see this older soldier running as his younger soldier's chasing and he's screaming at him. Can you imagine the other soldiers thinking, what is going on? And so that's the scene there in 2 Samuel. They're running and, and all of a sudden, Azahil is closing the gap. He knew soon, I'm gonna to have to fight this kid, and this is not gonna go well, because this kid's sword drawn, he's ready to go. This is gonna be, be a bad situation. So Abner takes his spear, he has a spear. He takes a spear and he's just jabbing it backward just to try to back Asahel off. Get back, get away from me, kid, I don't wanna hurt you. But in the course of that action, Abner stumbles, and when he stumbles, the end of his spear hits the ground, and Asahel runs up on his spear pierces him through and through, and he dies. Abner didn't mean to kill that kid. He was running from him. He was trying to back him away. He just didn't want to fight him. He didn't want to hurt him. But in the, in the middle of all that stuff, un, unintentionally, unavoidably, he kills Azahil. And the minute he ha that happened, Abner says, I, I, I've got to go to the city of refuge. I need, a, I need a judge to hear my case. I didn't mean to do this. This, is, this isn't murder. I wasn't trying to hurt this kid. This was purely accidental. And so he, he starts making his way toward the closest city of refuge, which was Hebron. Well, soon the word reaches the older brother, Joab. And Joab heard that Abner had killed his little brother. And Joab is enraged. 
And he said, friend or no friend, he killed my brother. And he said, I'll be the Goel. I'll be the avenger of blood. And so the chase is on. You have Abner on his way to Hebron. You have General Joab on his way as the avenger of blood to try to intersect Abner. And the Bible says in the closing verses there of 2 Samuel 3, at the gate, at the gate of the city of Hebron, Joab catches up with him. And I imagine the conversation might have gone something like this. Wait, don't go in the door. Stop. Let me talk to you about this. We've been friends a long time. I'm not going to hurt you. I just want to talk through this. I, I, I know you pro there's probably your side of the story, and I, I, wanna, I, I need to hear that. Don't go through the gate of the city. Come out and talk to me. I'm your friend. We've been friends a long time. Now, understand, legally, had Abner just stepped through the gate, he is, a court would have been convened, a judge would have heard his case, and he would have been exonerated. It wasn't intentional. It was accidental. This wasn't murder. But instead of stepping through the gate and finding refuge, he turns to the voice of the avenger of blood. He walks out to reason with Joab. And the Bible says Joab, with a sword in his hand, kills Abner at the gate of Hebron. And when the word reaches King David, he says, wait a minute, where was he? They said, sir, he was at the gate of the city. At the gate of the city. Meaning all he had to do was take a step and he would be safe. Yes, sir, that's all he had to do. And he didn't do it. He didn't do it. And David starts weeping. And David said, Abner, you died as a fool. You died foolishly. You could have taken a step. You were one prayer away. All you had to do is reach out and you could have found refuge. Remember? That is a picture of Jesus and us. So many people I talk to on the weekends are kind of like Paul before Agrippa in Acts 26, where Paul tells Agrippa what God has done for him, and here's what Agrippa said. Paul, almost, almost, you've persuaded me to be a Christian. I'm at the gate. <laughs> I'm right there. I'm not fully persuaded. I'm almost there. And as far as we know, Agrippa never stepped through the threshold. So my message to you today as I close, and those of you watching, you're standing at the gate. You're one prayer away. God has done all he can to save your soul. I can't push you through the door, I would. If I could kick you through that gate, I'd push you right in there right now. Get through that door. And 100 years from now, you'd hug my neck and thank me. I can't do that. All I can do is take you to the gate I can warn you there's an avenger of blood that does not want you to receive Jesus. He's hot on your heel. And if you'll step through the door, you'll find forgiveness, you'll find security, you'll find purpose. Jesus says, those who come to me, I will in no wise cast out. Let's pray. Father, I pray for my friends who may never have trusted you. They may have never stepped through the door, the gate, into the city of refuge. I pray for them right now in the room and those watching online that they would just swallow their pride and come to the realization that they need a Savior. 
And Father, I want to try to lead them to the door. I want to try to lead them to the gate. I want to try to put the words out there, even in their mouth. And Father, I pray their prayer would be something like this. Lord Jesus, with everything I know about me, I right now trust all that I know about you. Come into my heart this moment. Forgive my sin. I repent. I receive you today as my Savior. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for tuning in today. If you have any questions or prayer requests, please contact us by visiting metchurch.com so that we can follow up with you this week. We look forward to seeing you next week.